Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. We're changing things up. Even though we're supposed to be working on Elijah, Elisha, seven IMs and the seven signs in the Gospel of John. We'll hopefully do that tonight. Since... Uh, we're getting close. I would like to finish up our discussion on baptism in the scriptures. I'm not going to review everything we covered in the last hour. Um, we have done this. We have gone from Matthew to the book, all the way through the book of Acts. Here is what we've clearly established, that people have to believe and repent in order to be baptized. Clearly, we see no, zero evidence of children We have three household baptisms that have occurred in the book of Acts. One is Lydia. It does not say that everyone in the house believed, but the other two clearly demonstrate that the word of God was preached to everyone in the household and clearly implied that they believed in order to be baptized. So you can't take Lydia and just assume first that there were babies in the household because we know from scripture itself. We have the household of Abram and Sarah that went almost 100 years without a child. And we know other people in, in the Bible who were not able to have children and it, it took a while or they prayed and God granted them. But obviously, God didn't grant everyone who prayed for a baby a baby. So it's just foolish to assume that. Uh, and not only that, every scripture says that you have to believe in order to be baptized. Every single one. So why would all of a sudden infants start being baptized? Um, so we, we, I think we've done a pretty good job of eliminating that. We're in the book, of, we're now up to the book of Romans, all right? But so right before we get to Romans, I'm, we're going to take a little detour. Now, sometimes my detours add to these studies, but the reason I do the detours is to, to make sure that we do what? We don't miss anything, right? Because as soon as we miss something, well, first of all, we, I don't think we ever miss anything. Uh, what, what usually drives me crazy in our studies if someone will want to argue with me, one, they won't let me finish the study, or two, they won't bother to engage in the actual work to have a meaningful discussion about the study, because usually we, we, usually we cover everything, right? And the one, thing I'm, I, the, the one thing I always try to do is be fair to every perspective. I try my best to be fair to every perspective. Uh, if you miss our long discussion on Acts 2.38... We had, we had a discussion on Acts 2.38 in one service. We did as much as we could. I did an hour and a half review on a sermon on Acts 2.38, and we spent about 30 minutes this morning had a discussion about Acts 2.38, and I was still willing to acknowledge the, that the grammar doesn't fix all of our problems because I, I, look, because I don't care about a team. Like, if the scripture goes against our team, 
guess what? I will acknowledge that, right? I mean, like, I don't have a team. Like, that's what always gets us in trouble. Someone will come to this church like, oh, I thought you were reformed. You're not reformed enough. Wait, I thought you were this. You're not this enough. Well, I'm not here to wear your team colors. If you're looking for team colors, don't come to this church. Because all I care about is figuring out what the scriptures say. Sometimes it supports a team. Sometimes it doesn't. But how about stop worrying about which team you're on? I can't, oh. When theology becomes about teams, then, then you know what? Then we just make the Bible read according to our team. And clearly, what we've discovered is over and over and over, in many cases, the Bible never fully supports one team. In a lot of ways, it doesn't. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a little detour. If you have the Trinity hymnal, let's go to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the reason we're going to go to the Westminster Confession of Faith is because it does what? It disagrees with our team, okay? So guess what I like to do? I like to look at the other team. Why do we look at the other team? Because if all you ever do is read what agrees with your team, you'll always think, think you're right. So we like to be challenged, right? That's why we've done every, we, we've studied everything in here from the Catholic catechism to Luther's catechism. We read it and, and look at everything, right? So we're going to look at this. Uh, when we go to the Westminster Confession of Faith, we're dealing with a confession of faith that seems to, well, we'll just see what it seems to support. I'm not going to tell you. Everybody, everybody found it? What page number is it? 847 is the beginning, if you can't find it. Uh, the baptism section comes in page 864. All right. If you look on page 864, you're going to see something before baptism, and you're going to see a word. Sacraments. It's a sacramental system. Now, if it's a sacramental system, typically, typically, uh, now I've I, I had I think I think I had a friend in Nebraska, maybe two friends in Nebraska, who go to a church that's not sacramental, but they refer to the Lord's Supper and baptism as a sacrament, and I was baffled by that. All right. Typically, what do we understand by the word sacrament? A visible means of grace. A visible means of grace. Now, typically in the non-Catholic world, there are two things that are usually classified as a sacrament in the non-Catholic world. What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the idea that it's a visible means of grace means that if you're baptized, you receive some kind of grace. You, something happens. In other words, you're not just symbolizing something, something is actually transpiring, something is happening. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're not just remembering his death, you're receiving something in it. How does the Westminster Confession of Faith give, define a sacrament? How do you believe that they read? Holy signs and seals, all right, did they say anything about maybe what a sacrament does or doesn't do? Okay, right. There is a difference between signified. When, uh, whence it comes to pass that the name and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So there, that seems to imply that there's an effect. Yes? Agreed? The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacrament rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, 
Neither do the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which, which contains, together with a, a precept, authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. Immediately meaning that what? Something comes from it. You're getting something from it. There's some kind of promise attached to it, right? So the idea, like in many, many, in most sacramental systems, baptism is a sacrament, and what do you get for, from it? In a sacramental system, what do you get from baptism? Forgiveness of sins, salvation, right? You get something. Lord's Supper, what do you get from it? In a sacramental system. Oh, man, come on, guys. This is like Christianity 101. What do you get from the Lord's Supper in a sacramental system? You're getting the forgiveness of sins. Okay, everybody understand that. You're getting the forgiveness of sins. You're getting the forgiveness of sins. What do you get in baptism? Forgiveness of sins. What do you get in the Lord's Supper? Forgiveness of sins. Because typically in a sacramental system, typically in a sacramental system, why do you keep needing to get the forgiveness of sins? You keep sinning, and therefore you can lose something. You can lose your salvation. Therefore, you have to keep getting... In other words, it's not like an art. What we typically believe is because we put our faith in Christ, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, right? Any confession of sin is simply to maintain fellowship, not to maintain salvation, right? Because it's all been forgiven. In a sacramental system, almost every sacramental system, I think everyone, believes you can lose your salvation, right? Lutherans believe you can lose your salvation. Catholics believe you can lose your salvation, right? You have to get it back. Church of Christ. Yeah. Now the weird thing with Church of Christ, you can lose it, you don't have to get rebaptized, but you still, you can lose it, all right? So the meaning that the sacrament has a, something to it, right? Okay, so we, we don't use the word sacrament. And the reason we don't use the word sacraments is we, we believe that baptism we, is symbolizing what we have already received. And the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Christ did, but we've already received the benefits of it. All right? Does that make sense? That's a radically, that, like, that is a chasm between those two concepts far bigger than the, the Grand Canyon. It's like from here to Mars. It's like a bazillion miles away from one another. Those two can't coexist. They're not the same Christianity. I wish, I, I hate the fact that they were that divided, but that's how divided. This is a sacramental system that's being articulated to us. We do not believe in a sacramental system. We believe in an ordinance system. We believe God ordains these things in order to symbolize, signify, and remind, right? My baptism not only signifies, but I am reminded in my baptism that I was united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, right? Does that make sense? And so positionally, I am dead, positionally, and I'm alive now to God. Practically, we know we're not truly dead, Right? That's why we have to constantly be trying to put ourselves to death, but it's never truly going to happen. All right? Does that make sense? All right. Now, that brings us to baptism. Immediately, we see where they're going to go. What do they refer to baptism as? A sacrament of the New Testament, 
ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but, so immediately, please note, anyone who's baptized is brought into what? The church, the visible church. Guess what? Most who hold to West, the Westminster Confession of Faith believes that you baptize a baby and the baby now becomes a member of the visible church, which is somewhat bizarre, right? Because now you have members of the visible church who you know haven't done what two things? Believed or, or repented or believed. Now, that, that gets into an issue because now there's a debate. Some believe the church should be made up of believers. They believe, obviously, the church is made up of believer and unbeliever. Okay? Which is weird. Because if you believe, if you, so if you make the unbeliever a member of the church, can that unbeliever then be disciplined by the church? It would be weird to be disciplining an unbeliever, but if they're a member of the church, aren't they then bound by the rules of the church? That's bizarre. That's jacked up to do to a kid. <laughs> okay? Look, at the kid's like, I didn't ask to be a member of your stupid church. You baptized me. Right? So that, that, first of all, makes no sense. I, I wonder at what age can the child start being disciplined? And at what age can the child now get the Lord's Supper if they're a member of the church as an unregenerate person? That raises some serious questions, right? Hey, you're a member of the church, but you can't have the Lord's Supper. Because you have to believe. But I could be a member. All right, that, that just raises some questions. I, I know they probably have it all more figured out than I'm doing so, but I'm just saying, these are obvious questions we would ask, right? All right. Um, and, uh, and it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Now, it, now, it, now it, wait. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. That means you're putting the sign and seal of grace on an unbeliever. Yeah. Now, first of all, is baptism a sign and seal of grace? Well, I guess maybe we, we could possibly say baptism proves as a picture of our salvation. But what else does it say? Oh, wait a minute. It's a sign and seal? of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration and of remission of sins and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life? Why would you put that on an unbeliever? Okay, which sacrament is? by Christ's own appointment, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. The outward elements to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Dipping of the person into water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Now immediately we already have frustration, right? Because we clearly have already baptizo means to immerse, to submerge. And it blows my mind that in the history of the church, we can't agree on that word. But continue. What else? Not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So now you're, that clearly demonstrates they're baptizing whom? 
unregenerate people who do not in any way, shape, or form meet any of the criteria in which the baptism is supposed to be signifying. So if the parent believes, so then either because a parent believes, either the parent believes, so therefore the child is saved, therefore they get all of this stuff, meaning that they can be saved apart from believing, which would be a major problem, or you're baptizing an unregenerate person which means the sign and the seal signifies none of those things, right? If I baptize a baby, can it signify? What are all the things it supposedly signifies? Go through them all again? Yeah. Clearly it can't signify any of those things. Everyone agree? So you see where there's a problem here? Now, again, if I go after any Presbyterian who holds to this, I'm the stupid Baptist, we don't understand, we don't know church history, and I'm so sick of that arrogance. So either one, you're putting a mark on someone that doesn't, it doesn't signify these things, or two, you're claiming it actually produces these things. And if it produces these things... Well, then, then, then every baby that's baptized is eternally secure. Or then you've got to turn around and say that they lose it. Well, if they can lose it, then it never signified that in the first place. Right? They go on to say, although it, is a, it, although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance, now, just to show you what happened on that Saturday where I thought one person wanted to talk to me about baptism, where in reality I get called in and it's not one person, it's multiple people, and they have no desire to talk to me about baptism. They have a desire to tell me about baptism, right? And because they know I'm a Baptist, and guess what I'm told before the conversation was over? That I am in sin and my entire church is in sin because we don't baptize babies. Well, it's right there in their confession of faith. We are in sin. Yeah. Although it is to be a great sin. And yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. Now, try to, try to process that confusion. Just try to process that confusion, right? But... But they're not necessarily regenerated. <laughs> Read that and just try to process that and tell me how to process this. I'll let y'all read it. I want you because I don't want to sit there. I want y'all to read it and see how if it's is it just me or is it seems convoluted? You 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 read it and tell me what you think. They're back in themselves. Don't you know who this sounds like? Remember Tertullian on baptism? Yeah. It sounds just like Tertullian on baptism. Because on the one hand, what do they seem to be saying? You have to have it. You have to have 
You have to have it in order to be saved. So you have to have it, but it's possible that you can be regenerated without it, seeming to imply that when you baptize a baby, what do they get? Salvation. But possibly, but those baptized may not be regenerated. How utterly ridiculous is that? And they act like we're idiots? You know what that is? That's hedging your bets. I mean, okay. someone, do we have disagreement in how to read it? Okay. Oh, wait, do we have a disagreement in how to read this? Okay, yeah, if we go through it, so it's a great sin to neglect it. Yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all there that are baptized undoubtedly are regenerated. Does that make sense? Not everyone who gets baptized is regenerated. Yeah, they're closely connected, but they're not so closely connected. Oh, it is a little confusing, I agree. But it's clearly seeming to imply that you have to have it, but not necessarily. Because you could get it. But wait a minute, I thought it was the sign and seal of regeneration. Do what? That's the back door, right? So, I mean, look, please know. So it's a, it's a sin if we neglect it, right? Yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. So you possibly don't need it. You possibly don't need it in order to be saved. But it sure and seems to imply that you do need it in order to be saved. Yeah, you possibly don't need it, but you're possibly not saved. I mean, it's just so, like, just make up your mind. Either you need it or you don't need it. And if you don't need it, then why am I in sin for not doing it? Because guess what? We baptize anyone who believes so the issue comes down to babies that's what it comes down to the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered yet notwithstanding by the right use of the ordinance the grace promised is not only offered but really exhibited and conferred By the Holy Ghost. Now it seems to imply that if you're baptized, what will happen? You're going to get the grace. And what is that grace connected with? The engrafting, the wash away of sin, and regeneration. But the previous paragraph seemed to say it may not necessarily be required. All right? Um, To such, whether of age or infants, so that uh, grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. Now, what is this seeming to infer? That you may get baptized as a baby, 
But that grace may not show up till when? Till you're 10, 15, or 20, or 25. So meaning that that means that the baptism may not actually do anything until you're older. So it works, but it may not work then. <laughs> so will God's grace not show up if you don't baptize the baby? Now, we, we had some people who visited here before the pandemic, right, who thought about joined, and then they decided to go to a Presbyterian church, but they believed in infant baptism. But we were reformed enough, so they thought they could go here. But then I did a message where I said, I believe that they were making this, a sac- that it's sacramental, and they tried to argue that they weren't trying to make it sacramental. That makes it sacramental, people! Oh, yeah, I mean, it says it's a sacrament. I, I don't even know why there was a, a disagreement. Once again, a disagreement. But I, because I was trying to say that they make it like a part of salvation. They're like, no, they don't make it a part of salvation. That makes it a part of salvation. But how, how, it's such a pathetic thing. You can baptize a baby, but it may not work until they're 15 or 20. But then it, it may not work. Does it do it or does it not do it? it I mean, does that not bother? Does it not bother anybody else? Yeah, it's better for them just to say, "Don't baptize infants." Yeah, yeah, you know, and almost what Tertullian said. It would have been better to follow Tertullian and just say, "Hey, hey, hey, just hold off. We don't know." Because are you telling me God's grace won't show up on a child? If they're not baptized, we know that's trash because how many people have been saved who were never baptized as a baby? How many here are saved and was not baptized as a baby? Okay, all of us except Stephen. Okay. Okay, so, but all the rest of us, in fact, if we took most of this church, most, not most of everyone who's ever attended this church was not baptized as a baby. So how did we get saved? <laughs> but how did we get saved? Because in the Catholic church, it's like, you're, or in the Presbyterian, it's like you're almost putting this sign that means God's going to do some work. That's trash. I was in the military with plenty of kids who were raised Presbyterian. They were atheists, agnostic, drunks, and everything else. Obviously, well, you know, you got to give it time. They were 30 and 40 years of age. But maybe in the appointment time. And wait a minute. The Westminster believes in election. So if election doesn't require baptism to work. So the whole thing is caught. It's a, you know what? You know, this is what makes me mad about it. Why can't they just be honest? You do not derive that conclusion from Scripture alone. You derive that conclusion because you kept the tradition from Roman Catholicism when we, removed, when we left it. This is straight up leftovers from Roman Catholicism. But it wouldn't even give you assurance. Because we put this sign on them that God's going to do something. I guess. But I mean, the point is, it even says that it may not bring regeneration. 
It, I, I, it's so ridiculous. It's so, it's just utterly ridiculous. Because, uh, and, like, and look, we've gone from Matthew to Acts, and we've not seen anything like this. We've not seen anything like this. The closest we got was Acts 2.38, and even that, the, you, you still have to repent and believe. In order, to, in order to be baptized. Or if you take Acts 2.38, verse 41, if you put them together, you get the idea. So it's just, I, that's just such a convoluted confession of faith to me. It doesn't, it doesn't do it. It could do it. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I don't know. It's like, does it do, my question is, does it work or not? Well, I was Lutheran. Didn't work. Uh, how many of those kids were baptized? And they, they're more dogmatic in that it works. Didn't work because I, I was there with the youth and I was like, this is horrible, right? Because I mean, like the youth, the, the, the Lutheran youth were basically, I hate church, I hate God, I hate everything. Leave me alone. At least in the Baptist church, there were at least kids who were like, you know, I believe. I mean, I may be struggling, but I believe, you know, like something. It was nuts. And, but all those kids in the Lutheran church had been baptized, supposedly brings about regeneration. And so then when I go to the Lutheran pastor, like, what is wrong? Well, you know they can lose their salvation. Well, then what was the point of baptizing them? <laughs> God's work of, of, of salvation in a baby is useless. If you can lose it, because I guarantee you every teenager is going to lose it. So, like, that didn't make any sense. And this one is even more convoluted. It does it. Well, I mean, it doesn't do it. I mean, you don't need it. I mean, you need it. Well, I mean, maybe. I mean, it could be that God is just waiting. So the baptism doesn't necessarily work immediately. Ain't that a weird sacrament? Hey, here's the sacrament. It has, you know, could, you could be 70 before it kicks in. <laughs> what is that? Oh, okay. So I wanted to look at that just to show you once again, how convoluted the church has made all of this. To make all of this. Now, typically, what many in that world does, this is what they try to argue. You know why you baptize babies? Because baptism replaces circumcision. And circumcision was administered to children when they were eight days old. Now, I don't know for those who didn't hear the first hour, I went ahead and just destroyed that argument. Because the best place we would go to fix this would be Acts 15, where they have a church council dealing with circumcision. And if, the, if baptism replaced it, that church council should have been really quick, right? Hey, guys, we don't need to argue baptism or, or circumcision. It's been replaced by baptism. So Gentiles, start baptizing your children. They don't even mention it in the entire council. In fact, we don't have an example of a baby being baptized anywhere in the entire Bible. Now you think it would be like if you're, because that would have been something, everyone would have been like, what is happening here, right? Guys, guys, remember how we used to circumcise a child here? Now we have this elaborate ceremony where we baptize a child. You think it would be, it would be somewhere laid out. It's not laid out. Where was it laid out? In church tradition. And we saw by going from the Didache to Hippolytus, what did we see? They were adding stuff like crazy. 
You got to be taught for three years. You have to fast. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to take off all of your clothes. You have to be anointed with oil. You have to be, have a demon exercise. Oh, none of that is in scripture. So if we can go back and trace that they started adding stuff that far back, then by the time you get to the 1500s and the Reformation, it's already filled. And our, our, obviously the Catholic Church had added a bazillion things. So the issue is, when you break away from it, are you going to break away from all of it and go to Scripture? Or are you going to break away from some of it, claiming that you're following Scripture? But if you're going to follow Scripture alone, you've got to break away from all of it. All right, now go to Romans. Okay. Um, where's the first use of baptism in Romans? Yeah, I knew it was going to be chapter 6. Oh boy, here we go. All right. I wanted to finish it. I don't think we're going to get to it because we're already at noon, but I wanted to at least look at that whole issue. All right. Okay. All right, good. Sarah's got them both. All right, here we go. So we agree there's nothing in Romans 1 through 5 on baptism. Okay, now we come to chapter 6. Why is chapter 6 so controversial? Well, first, baptism is mentioned, and immediately it is assumed by many that this baptism is water baptism. If it's water baptism that is assumed, you remember how, we, how do we always do it here in this church? What do we always do when we come to doctrinal issues? We agree and take it to its logical conclusion, right? We always do that. Now, with the Westminster Confession, we didn't really take it to the logical conclusion because I don't know if I can take it to a logical conclusion when it's so inconsistent in what it appears to be saying. You need it, but you don't need it. You can get it. It may not work until... Like, I'm not going to even play games with that. But with Romans 6, we're dealing with God's Word. So now we have to at least try to struggle with this. You can get some commentaries and they'll say there's not a drip of water in Romans 6. Others will be like, it's full of water. Nobody can agree. Now what we have established by going from Matthew to Acts is, I don't remember, I think almost 20 times, 20 something times, we've had the word baptism not refer to water baptism. So we know it is possible that the word baptism does not always refer to water. We know that that's at least possible. So but most of the time it does so far, so far. We'll have to see how we're going to approach this. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? We start in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we... Okay, making sure that we weren't having internet connections back there. All right, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Let's stop right here. Okay. Now, when it says that we're dead to sin, let's just start with a practical, 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 logical conclusion here. Are we dead to sin in a practical way right now? We are not. Can we all agree with that? Because if I'm dead to sin in a practical way, what should be the logical conclusion? We don't sin anymore. So the fact that we all still sin means we're not dead to sin. So how are we dead to sin? Positionally. That's very important. That's the way that you have to start this chapter. How am I dead to sin? Because of my what? Or my, 
In, because I'm in Christ. In Christ. I am, what can we say? I am united to Christ. What's another thing I could say? Using baptism language. I'm merged into Christ. I have been immersed into Christ. I've been submerged into Christ. I am, connect, I am, I am now, in a sense, covered by Christ, right? My entire identity is Christ. When God sees me, what does he see? Christ. What does he see? His righteousness, his obedience, his perfection. Therefore, I am dead to sin. I am not dead to sin in my daily life. Anyone who says that you're dead to sin in your daily life is a liar, meaning, and that's a sin. Okay, right? Right, I mean, there's just no, we sin every single day in thought, word, and deed. Doesn't mean we commit every sin that we can. Doesn't mean we commit the same sin. It doesn't mean that that excuses my sin, right? If I get in an airplane today and go to Vegas and hire three prostitutes, that's wrong. And that's a sin. But that doesn't mean you sitting at home are not committing sin. You just wouldn't be committing that sin. Does that mean, I'm not saying one, and we can get into an argument, well, which one is worse than the other? Earthly, practically, me going to Vegas, sleeping with three prostitutes, is probably going to be viewed worse. But from a theological perspective, if Bobby is sitting at home and he does anything, if he violates one point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. So in a roundabout way, even though I would be engaging in physical adultery with prostitutes, Bobby would still be an adulterer because if he's broke one law, he's broken them all. Christians can't wrap their minds around that. They just can't. They just, they, like, that just blows their mind because they want to say, no, no, no. See, Bobby proves he's saved because he's sitting in Tuscola. He's not in Vegas. I would be the one who would be accused of, I couldn't be saved. But now that's basing salvation off some scale of what's right or wrong. But in God's eye, Bobby's good deeds and my good, even if I was doing any good deeds, are filthy rags because they're all tainted by sin. Christians cannot process that. They just lose their minds. Because immediately, people would question my salvation, would they not? You guys would question my salvation. You would question it. Yeah. Because I'm committing the big one. But you would probably never question your own, which is insane. If we're going to judge salvation based off what we do, then shouldn't we all be questioning our salvation? Because I, I, I get, has anybody here been holy as God is holy? Have you loved God with all your heart, mind, body? So you can sit there and do all of things. You can be slothful, a glutton, a gossip, a slander, a liar. You can covet. You can all. You can lust as long as you do it internally then you can pat yourself on the back and go, I passed the lordship test. But as soon as I deviate from the internal and it comes external, then everybody pulls out their little, uh, you know, their clipboard and like, uh, 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 he's not saved because salvation changes people. That's what we say. Yeah, well, yeah, it changes people because if I don't conform, conform to your little rules that you establish for me, I get kicked out of your club. While you sit there in judgment, arrogant, condescending jerk, judging everybody. Because that's why people want the lordship where they can tell who's saved and not saved. What I get so sick of, when people want to argue with me about it, 
Go judge yourself. Stop arguing with me. Because if you judge yourself, you wouldn't be calling me to argue with about the subject. You'd be calling me to do what? Confess your sins. <laughs> okay. But I don't ever get the calls to confess of sin, do I? In my entire years of ministry, you know how many phone calls I've probably received from someone calling to confess sin? How many do you think? Maybe one. Maybe two. Maybe. That's about 20-something years in ministry. Nobody's going to call and confess sin. They'll call and argue with me. They won't call and confess sin. Now, you know why? Because we somehow convince ourselves that we, as long as we're not committing the big one. And it's just such a facade. I can't stand it. So immediately if I read this, that we're dead to sin, I know that I'm not dealing with a practical, I'm dealing with a positional reality. Now, how does that positional reality occur? Here's the question. Does my positional reality occur because I have water put on me? Or does this positional reality occur by faith? That's where the debate rages, right? Now, we do know that if baptism produces that positional reality, then you should not be able to lose it. Isn't it weird that the people who believe it produces that reality are the very people who say, you can lose it. That makes no sense to me. Even in the Westminster, don't they hedge their bet? Why do they say that it may not work at first? Because what are they going to judge that by? Your actions. <laughs> oh my goodness. Isn't it just insane how we can't figure this stuff out? All right, next verse. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, that is, there is a truth to that. What is the Christian life supposed to be? The never-ending attempt and practice to live out what is true positionally. I agree that we should not live in sin. Does any, and it's, a, it's weird that if you're not lordship, immediately someone will call you into question that you don't believe that. I 100% believe that we shouldn't live in sin. Have I ever said otherwise? Nope. The only difference is I'm willing to acknowledge how much we live in it. <laughs> That's really the only difference. If you're like, no, you have to do this in order to be saved. I'm like, no, I have to believe in order to be saved. But I believe with you that we should not live in it. But I'm willing to admit that while you're sitting here arguing with me, you're living in it. So stop, get off my phone and go fix your own problem. There you go, right? That sounds mean, but I don't mean it in a mean way. I mean it that that's the reality of it. I've got my own problem. Here, you want want like a a, a great piece of theology to, to, to write down today? You ready? I want you to show. I want you to see the difference between spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity. All right. When you, as a parent, tell your kid "grow up," how do you understand maturity or growing up when you're dealing with a child in your family? What does that mean to you when you tell them to grow up and you and, and to become more mature? What does that mean to you? 
Ooh, becoming independent. Independent. Right? Agreed? Take, you, can, you take responsibility for yourself. You can take care of yourself. You can make good decisions. I can trust you on a Friday night. Right? You're becoming mature, right? So maturity and life is one of becoming self-reliant and independent. In spirituality, in the theological world, the more we grow spiritual, we don't grow more independent. We grow more dependent upon God. We grow more and more aware of our own weakness, our own flaws, our own sins, our own problems. So we become more and more dependent and reliant upon God's mercy and not my actions. The person who argues, my action, my action, my action, is showing spiritual spiritual immaturity. Because spiritual maturity would say, I'm a sinner and I need Christ. I'm a sinner. I I am dependent upon Christ. I'm dependent upon Christ for his righteousness. I'm dependent upon Christ for his forgiveness. I'm dependent upon Christ for his obedience. Because if I rely on my own thing, I'm not getting there. But a spiritually immature person can't see that. Spiritually mature person will see it. They will become more and more aware of, guess what? Their own sin. You want to know the difference between spiritual immaturity and maturity? The spiritually mature person isn't worried about Sarah's sin because they know they got enough of their own. And when they see it, hear about Sarah's sin, right? They will immediately go, I better work on my own. When they hear a Sarah's sin, they're going to see their sin. may be different than Sarah's sin, right? But you're going to be more aware. Your every report of someone else's sin make you more aware of your own. I've tried to, I've tried to always practice that. I've, I've talked about it the first time, uh, the First Baptist Church, Hammond, Indiana, when the pastor got in trouble. And he deserved to be in trouble, not, not making any excuse. I mean, he left his phone on the pulpit. One of the deacons found it, and he had messages that he was having a physical relation with one of the teenagers in the church who he transported across state lines to engage in physical activity with. That's illegal. That's horrible. He deserved to go to jail. He went to jail. But when I did my podcast over that, my first thought was, how can I contact this guy, and how can I see how I can minister to him? And a lot of people were so angry with me. I wasn't saying that what he did was right. I'm not saying, the church did the right thing. They turned him over to the authorities. That was the right thing to do. He broke the law. But guess what? He still deserves what from a Christian perspective? He still deserves the gospel, right? Isn't the gospel as much for him as it is for anybody else? Now, I don't think he should ever be working with teenagers, okay, right? Okay, but but the point is, he still deserves grace. I've always tried to be like that. Because, now, I'm not saying I've always been good at that. Because I also had the lordship mentality that would be like, well, probably not saved, probably not saved, probably not saved, probably not saved, probably not saved. And I was really good at doing that. Because you know what it always made me feel good about? Made me feel good about myself. Because if I see Bobby's down here, if I see Bobby's down here, then I know I'm doing pretty good. But at some point, spirit, I want to make sure you understand this. In In the physical world, maturity is independence. In the spiritual world, Maturity is dependence. We see how weak and broken we are. 
We see we need God. We should not live in sin, but we will be the ones most aware that we don't and that we need what? Christ. Now, verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, stop right here. Here we go. Now, we've got two options here. What are our two options? Well, well, let's not even get to the water, not water, but that's good. Let's get into, all right, does, let's say, let's by argument's sake claim that this is water baptism. Does water baptism unite me to Christ's death? If it does, then what they're claiming is you, you've, got, oh, you've got two more options. I get water baptized, boom, I am united to Christ's death. The argument here is therefore I'm now dead to sin. So either this unites me to Christ's death in a positional way, or this unites me to Christ in a practical way, or it unites me in both ways. Well, the minute you say water baptism unites me to Christ's death, either positionally or practically, then guess what? First of all, you can't teach you can lose your salvation. And secondly, this would mean that once someone is baptized, either they are positionally secure forever or they stop sinning. Well, we know it can't be practical because how many people have been baptized who still sin? Everyone. So immediately we know that's not true. Correct? So then it would have to be positional. Well, if you're going to say baptism unites me to Christ's death, well, then I am eternally secure based off what? Baptism. But everyone who believes that that's the case believes you can lose it, which would make no sense. How could I lose it if I'm dead? (laughs) Right? (laughs) I can't do anything. So, what are other options? Either this baptism here is not water, that it's just simply saying, when I am united, in other words, I could state it this way, know ye not that as many of us as were united into Jesus Christ were united into his death. In other words, if I am in Christ, and how am I in Christ? By faith that I am now united, I am in him, and I am united to his death. Or I have to believe that this water baptism produces this positional reality on itself, which would create problems. Look at verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ we are raised up from the dead, so by the glory of the Father even so we should walk in newness of life. I could argue that my baptism pictures this, doesn't produce it. The language almost acts like it produces it. So then we could argue, do we have two baptisms in a sense going on? Kind of my spiritual immersion into Christ by faith, and then that spiritual immersion is called baptism, and then my physical baptism pictures the spiritual baptism. I mean, you don't have a lot of options here, right? Either the water produces it, and that just seemed would be a problem, right? I mean, because if the water produces it, 
Well, then you, you, I, I, do, I do appreciate the Church of Christ for this, right? They at least try to bring in all the elements, right? I do appreciate the Church of Christ this, because they don't baptize babies, right? So that's good. But they do try to maintain this order. And, I, and you were Church of Christ, so tell me if I get the order right. It's something like repent, believe, be baptized. You have to have all three, right? Which I do agree. I do admire that they make you have all three. You have to repent. You got to baptize. Now, the repent, they probably treat as a change of action, not a change of mind, right? I believe they go with that. But point is, at least they have those three. I admire that. At least they don't say you can just put this on a baby and the baptism produces this. But in a roundabout way, so they would say you repent, you're baptized, you repent, you believe, you're baptized, and then that produces Romans 6. At least they have the order, and so I admire them. Here, doesn't even really give you the order, Okay, I'm going to tell you, look, which is another problem. Once again, you can lose it. And if you lose it, how can I lose it? Because this says I'm united to him in death, so I am dead. How can a dead person lose something? Without the baptism. I, it's so, that's so broken in my mind. So in my estimation, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah well, at, at least Westminster, you only do it once. But it may not work. But it could work. We don't know. Okay, that's, that's all confusing. So here, I am pro... This is what I'm more... I tend to lean this way. That this is the spiritual baptism that I'm united to Christ in. And, as, and because I'm united to Christ, it literally produces these results. It literally produces these results. I do believe water baptism symbolizes this. It shows this because I can't show Bobby my union with Christ, right? Because it's a positional. I can't show Bobby I'm dead to sin because I'm not dead to sin practically. So how do I show Bobby I'm dead to sin? I can't. My baptism confesses to him that I have died, I have been buried, and I've raised to walk in newness of life, but I'm clearly going to do that positionally. I'm never going to do that perfectly Practically, because practically, do I always show a new life? No. Sometimes even my sermons, I don't show a new life, right? I get frustrated, I get angry, I get mad. All the things that I, we, we know, we all see it, right? So I can only demonstrate it through a symbolic action, which I think is, but I think this refers to my spiritual baptism, because by faith, I am what? Here I am, and here's Christ. What happens by faith? And merged into, and now what am I identified as? A Christian. A, 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 I'm, I'm identified by Christ, not by self. I'm immersed. I'm fully overwhelmed by Christ. Right? That, we'll have to stop there because of time, but that at least gets us started. Oh, man, we only got to Romans. How many more do we have to look at? How many, how many references do we have? Oh, boy. We're never going to finish About 10 to go? All right, well then, then oh, I need to do the other thing, but so, tonight. Okay, go ahead. And Romans 6? Yeah. That it's the uh, spiritual baptism? That's the theory I'm going with. Now, some would just say, this is just picturing water baptism as picturing doing these things, but the scripture seems to imply that it accomplishes it. Does that make sense? So therefore, that's why I have to have the spiritual baptism connected with it. I don't think I can read that. Oh, no, this is what water baptism pictures. It doesn't seem to read that way. 
seems to read that baptism is the thing causing it. But even if Romans 6 says it causes this, I want to make it very clear. Even if Romans 6 says it causes this, it still would not support infant baptism. Okay? Because there's nothing here to deviate from the the order of repent and believe. You still would have to repent and believe. Does that make sense? That's why I do admire the Church of Christ for at least maintaining that. Amen? But I just think Romans 6 is... I think it's clearly a positional thing that's being described here. And that positional thing I know is not accomplished by water. It's accomplished by faith. Does that make sense? Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's basically what Romans 6 is saying. That that it's the repent, the believe, and the baptize that then produces all of these effects. Basically, baptismal regeneration. It's going to wash away your sin. It's going to save you. Right. But you can lose it. Which is just funny. Every church, that's the one thing they all have in common. Every church who connects baptism to salvation believes you can lose it. And I I wonder why. Because they've got a history of people being baptized who what? Who clearly stop believing. Clearly. They become atheist, agnostic. They just, they just walk away from it all. So they have to believe that. That's the only, they're, on, they're, they're only out. That's their only out. Which is just horrific, is it not? Or you have to do the Westminster. Well, it just hasn't worked yet. <laughs> it may take 40 years. But even the Westminster said you may not, it may not produce regeneration. Right? So even they offer a way out. Well, I mean, you got baptized, but, you know, it doesn't actually produce regeneration. Well, <laughs> I don't understand. Because we all, we all, look, everyone knows. Just think of all the people you've gone to church with in your life. Where are many of those people today? Don't go to church anymore. Many may don't even confess salvation. I could probably go back to all I could probably go back to people I went to Bible Institute with. Just walked away. Just washed their hands of it all. Just walked away. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean that that that, that clearly yeah seems to indicate that that's all positional. That's all positional realities. That's all positional realities. And those positional realities are because I'm in Christ. I would say see Ephesians 1. We're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. All throughout Ephesians, it's because I'm in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And that in Christ is like I've been placed in Christ. I've been submerged into Christ by faith, right? So, all right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. These are hard concepts. I am thankful for a church where we can struggle through these things, be honest with these things, be frustrated by some of the things we witness within Christianity. But Lord, help us always see that For everything we learn, there's a million things that we still don't know and a million things we still have wrong. So let us always see our own shortcomings and failures as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...